0: You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso, Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Amen. How are we doing, church? Yeah. I asked Maria that question, and she answered, I'm here. And that's okay. Um, This is why we gather. Um, It's just sobering, and it's a reminder of why we do what we do every week. My name is David, and I'm the worship minister here at Grace Hills. I have the privilege of giving Simon a little bit of a break this morning and continuing our series in the book of Acts. Um, We are in one of my favorite passages of all time this morning, and it's the passage of Paul and Silas in this prison in Philippi. Um, If you're just joining us in this series in the book of Acts, basically what we've seen throughout this entire story is how the first followers of Jesus Christ— Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and basically form the early church. How does the gospel reach the nations? The book of Acts tells us that story. And so, across the story, we've seen preaching, we've seen persecution, and all throughout it, we've seen the power of our God inviting the most unlikely characters into his family, into his story, and into the church. And so, this morning, we're picking up the story in Acts 16. And it's a passage that, as we'll see this morning, I think not only reveals the life of praise and of rejoicing and of just unshakable hope that we are called into as God's people, but it also reveals the power of our God to save. And so, as my pastor growing up would always do, I'd love to start this morning with a question for you guys. And my question this morning is this. Have you ever been to prison? I really want to ask for a show of hands. I'm not going to do that. Um... (laughs) I've been to prison at least two times that I can remember. Um, I've got y'all on the edge of your seat now. Um, <laughs> both, times, both times I went willingly, um, I went as a tourist. I haven't been like incarcerated yet. Um, <laughs> the most recent time, I was on a trip to Lithuania, the country of Lithuania with some family friends. It's a really long story. Um, and one of the places that we went was this prison called Lukashkis Prison in the capital city of Vilnius. Um, This is a picture of the prison. If this looks familiar to you, this is actually where they filmed some of season four of Stranger Things, if that means anything to you. Full disclosure, that is completely why we went. Um, We found out that the place was built in 1904. Um, It was one of the only prisons that's actually survived both world wars. Um, It was used by the Soviets, it was later used by the Nazis when Lithuania became Nazi-occupied in the height of World War II. The place had a reputation of being, first of all, a very loud prison, um, which isn't a good thing. Um, You could hear the cries of prisoners from, the tour guide told us, from blocks away from this prison. Um, Secondly, it had the reputation of being just a very cruel place. Um, Lithuania gets really, really cold in the winter. This place didn't have heat, didn't have light, didn't have windows, didn't have any of that. Now, the reason I bring this up, welcome to church, right? Go in peace. is because for over 115 years this prison was a place of suffering and of death. You want to see the prison today? Today the prison has reinvented itself into Lukashkis Prison 2.0, an outdoor concert venue boasting a selection of local food trucks, craft brews, and local musicians performing on rotation. What once was a prison is now a concert venue. What once was a place where screams of suffering could be heard from blocks away is now literally a place where singing can be heard from blocks away. And if you know the story we're in this morning, you know where I'm going with this, right? I'd like to argue that this picture right here is not too different from what we're going to see Paul and Silas doing in this prison in Philippi in Acts 16. And so with that said, we're going to be looking at three things as we walk through this story this morning. Um, Number one is the situation. What lands Paul and Silas in prison in the first place? Um, Number two is the song. What are they singing? How are they singing in this prison? Um, And number three is the salvation that God brings about at the end of it all. So um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll keep talking about prisons. Um, Father, I thank you for this morning. And as we open your word, I just pray that you would bring this story to life. Um, God, would you remind us that the God who was with Paul and Silas in this prison in Philippi 2,000 years ago, is the same God that we're talking to and we're in the very presence of right now. So God, I pray you would help me to get out of the way this morning, help me put your word on display. I pray you would be in my head, in my thinking, in my mouth, in my speaking, in my heart, in my understanding. It's in your name I pray all these things. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I'd love for you to turn to Acts chapter 16. Um, last week, we left off basically talking about this dream team of the early church that's formed. Um, we have Paul and Luke and Silas, and last week, we were introduced to two more characters. We were introduced to Timothy and Lydia, and they're basically forming this church-planting dream team. Like, <laughs> if you're trying to plant churches, this is a really, really good starting five. Things are, like, finally starting to look up for the early church, and if you've been with us for any part of the series, you know that means things are probably about to get a little bit weird and potentially a lot more difficult. So we pick up in verse 16. It says, as we, it's talking about Paul and Silas, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I love that, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. We'll pause there for now. Um, I warned you, things were about to get weird. The first point we have this morning is the situation. And really, the situation revolves around this girl who, in verse 16, is called a slave. She's a slave girl. And really, she's doubly enslaved to two things, right? Number one, she's enslaved to her masters, who are exploiting her for profit. And number two, the text tells us she has a spirit of divination. She's a fortune teller. She's enslaved to some sort of demonic forces. we don't have to nod our heads and pretend like we really understand that. Like, I think we have some sort of shallow concept of what that means with like palm readers or tarot card readers, but for the most part, those people certainly aren't making a lot of money and they certainly aren't on every street corner around here. Um, I think it's important for us to understand this kind of thing was incredibly prevalent in the ancient world. The fact that her masters are able to make a living off of her doing this should kind of prove that point. And so we have this weird, demonic, fortune-telling slave girl following Paul and Silas around. The text says for days. Um, Like, I'd consider myself a fairly patient person, but that's going to get old really fast. What's interesting here is what she's saying, right? She's not necessarily heckling them. Like, if any of you have had the privilege of going to a Mariners-Astros game with me, you know what heckling sounds like. Um, This isn't it. Right, like she's not following them around like, boo, spineless, Silas." like she's not doing that. What does she say? She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Here's what's ironic and frankly what ought to give us some cause for concern. There is nothing false in that statement. On first reading this, you might expect Paul and Silas to turn around and be like, hey, thanks for the support. Like, we love our fans. That's not what they say. John MacArthur said once, the father of lies sometimes speaks the truth when it suits his purposes. See, guys, Paul and Silas have the Holy Spirit. And by that power and by that discernment, they're able to see right through this slave girl and see what's really going on here. And what they see is an enemy, an enemy who's trying to hinder their gospel witness. Um, church, do we, do we exercise that kind of discernment? Like, I'm not saying we need to be the Christians that think anything and everything is like satanic and demonic, but guys, we got to be on guard. Um, there was a Barna poll done a few years ago. 59% of Christians do not believe that Satan is a living being, but rather just a symbol of evil. Here's what's maybe even more sad. of Christians agree the Holy Spirit likewise is not a living being, but just a symbol of God's power. Guys, that's how we lose. Part of the Christian life is remembering that we are in a war and we have a very real enemy who wants nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy who? You and your faith. Just be aware of that at the very same time, remember that inside each and every born-again believer lives the Holy Spirit, who points us to Jesus as a risen, roaring lion, who no demons, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can stand against. That's the power that lives inside of you. See, Paul isn't one of those 58% of Christians. Paul knows the Holy Spirit lives in him. He knows the power that's on his side. And so the text says Paul... Having become greatly annoyed, he turns and said to the spirit, see that again, he sees right through this girl, he addresses the spirit and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Let's keep reading. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Why were Paul and Silas thrown in jail? The charge against them is not that they exercised the slave girl. That's what gets the trial started. The charge against Paul and Silas is that they are advocating customs that aren't lawful for us to accept. They're preaching the gospel. Now the question is, why is that so offensive? Like, especially in a culture like the one they were in, when this fortune-telling slave girl is able to make a literal fortune doing that, When there are piles of religions and idols on every street corner why is the christian gospel alone singled out for persecution it's because christianity would never consent to be considered just one of those religions right jesus didn't come and declare i am a way i am a truth and i am a life who does that offend nobody No, Jesus came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that gets them in a heap of trouble. So not only are Paul and Silas ordered to be attacked, but the crowd joins in. The crowd, like, interrupts the story, attacking them. This is a mob attack of flogging and beating for their witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, let's not forget, just a few years before this, who would have been the one on the other side? who would have been the one ordering the flogging and the beating and the killing of these Christians? It was Paul. This man who a few years before wanted nothing more than the gospel of Jesus Christ to die is now willing to risk his own life that the gospel of Jesus Christ might go forward. Church, that's a testimony. That's the kind of change that our God brings about. And that brings us to the next part of our story. See, Paul and Silas are stripped, they're beaten, They're flogged, they're attacked by this mob. And we pick up in verse 23. It says, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them that make any sense to you? Like Paul and Silas are sitting there, probably half alive, like blood probably still running down their backs. And we meet this jailer for the first time, and he has the nerve to throw them. Do you catch where? The inner prison. Um, by the way, the way prisons were constructed in this age, the inner prison would have been below the other cells. It would have been recessed. In other words, the human waste from all the other cells what a run down. Like Paul and Silas are sitting there in the middle of the night, in the dark, probably in a literal pile of crap. And this jailer also has the nerve to fasten their feet in stocks, right? We think of like American revolutionary, revolutionary era stocks that we like put our heads in and take a funny picture. Um, that is not what Roman stocks were like. I'm not even going to put a picture on the screen, Roman stocks were designed to torture and move the body in ways it was never designed to move. By the way, that word in the Greek here for stocks, elsewhere in Acts, you know what it's translated? Cross. Does that make you think of anything? Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 16? If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In the Western church, we think of that as putting a cross necklace around our neck every morning. Like, we don't even have a category for that. Paul and Silas do. They're living it. Like, I just read this and I get this picture of Paul and Silas sitting there in the prison and it's like Paul looks over at Silas and he's like, Silas! He's like, remember when Jesus said we were gonna have trouble? He's like, remember when the world, when Jesus said the world was gonna hate us? Remember when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me? And Paul's like... He's like, look down. He's like, we're doing it. We're doing it. And it says about midnight, they start praying and they start singing hymns to God. Is that your natural response? By the way, the answer is no. Um, That's not like a life group discussion question. The answer is just no. (laughs) That is not how any human being would naturally respond in that situation. How are they able to do this? That brings us to our second point, the song. Um, When the pandemic hit a few years ago, you certainly don't need me to remind you, the world was thrown into chaos, um, heavily regulated chaos. Um, We found out a lot about how human beings respond to difficulty really quick. And I think we have the tendency to do one of three things. Number one, we plan. Where are my planners at in the room? Yeah, difficulty comes and you start making a to-do list, right? You were the ones at Costco buying toilet paper in the spring of 2020, (laughs) right? Your fantasy football team starts losing games and so you start watching film to see if you need to make a quarterback change. Just me? Cool. Um, Difficulty comes, you immediately start planning. The text doesn't say about midnight, Paul and Silas were planning how they were going to get out. It doesn't say they were drafting a letter to Rome declaring an unjust trial. It's not how they respond. Number two, we can plan or we can pout. Where are my powders at in the room? Just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> difficulty comes and some of us just shut down. We stop reaching out to friends. We turn on some show and watch it for hours on end that just lets us forget about the situation we're in. It's not Paul and Silas either. It doesn't say about midnight they were silent. It doesn't say about midnight they were pouting. They could have been in this prison just beat And no one could have possibly blamed them. But it doesn't say about midnight they were planning. It doesn't say about midnight they were pouting. It's number three, they were praying and singing hymns to God. Number three, they were praising. Now, my first question, maybe just as a worship guy, but it's like, what song were they singing? Was it How Great Thou Art? Was it Oceans? I don't know. I can't wait to ask them someday. But what seems clear in the text is they're not necessarily singing a song of petition, asking God to deliver them. The word there in the Greek is the word hymneo. That should sound familiar. It's literally the verb form of hymn. To him, to sing, to celebrate, to worship, to praise. Um, by the way, that same verb is used twice in the Gospels. You know who's singing? It's Jesus. Jesus is singing with his disciples. That's for free. I just thought that was cool. Um, So what are Paul and Silas singing? They're singing songs of praise. By the way, not just one. It doesn't say they sung the doxology and then hit the hay. It says they are continually singing and praying to God. They're singing hymns to the God who they recognize is still on the throne, is still in control. Even though they're in the middle of this prison, they recognize he is still worthy of their worship. And that right there, guys, is why, frankly, I take my job pretty seriously. Because part of my job is recognizing that when the midnight hour comes, when we're sitting here this morning like this with tears in our eyes, I think songs often come to our minds, at least for me. And so part of my job in choosing what songs we're going to sing each week is to give you songs like melodies that point you upward rather than inward. It's to give you songs like arrows in your quiver to fire back at the evil one. It's to give you songs like flares to set off and remind you who is in control in times of trouble. And I'll tell you one thing, I'm not really concerned with whether those songs are slow or upbeat, whether they have drums or an organ, whether they're contemporary or traditional. My primary concern in choosing the songs we're going to sing each week is do the songs that we're singing point us to see and behold the majesty and the goodness of our God? So that when your world is shaking, you can sing Christ alone, Cornerstone. So that when it seems like everything around you is falling apart, you can sing, I know how the story ends. So that when everyone around you is telling you to give up hope, you can sing, Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light. He is my strength. He is my song. That's why what we sing matters. I had a prophet, Biola, who would say the reason Christians come to church is to learn how to suffer and die well. In other words, guys, when we sing together each week, part of what we're doing is training. We're training ourselves for not only what we're going to sing, but how are we going to sing when our own midnight hour comes, when the suffering hits. And can we be real, church? It's been that kind of week. It's been an awful week. We've lost friends, we've lost a brother, some of us have lost a sister. Like, how the heck are we gonna worship and sing and praise when so many of us, just like Paul and Silas, find ourselves in this season of suffering, in this midnight hour? It's the same way Paul and Silas do. I think the answer is found in a letter that Paul writes, by the way, while in prison again, To the church in this very town. This is Philippians 1, starting in verse 18. How are we going to sing in times of trouble? Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. See, Paul and Silas' bones are broken, but their hope isn't. It looks like they are abandoned and alone in this inner prison, but they know Emmanuel, God with us, is right there with them. Nothing around them makes sense. And they are able to lift up songs of praise like, There's no tomorrow. How is that possible? Because for Paul and Silas, to live is Christ. And life in Christ is one of hope and it's one of unshakable joy. I'm not saying life is easy. I'm not saying there aren't tears, but church, we have a hope and a joy that is not rooted in this life. Guys, death is not the end. Like Brian's favorite song, Old Rugged Cross. I will cling to the Old Rugged Cross and exchange it someday for a crown. He's not just singing that probably louder than ever now. He's living it. To live is Christ and to die is gain. They have an unshakable joy in Christ. That's how they're able to sing. Like you ever talk to a new Christian? Or how about a Christian who just got back from camp? It's like they're just radiating joy. It's like nothing could possibly bring them down. What does that come from? How is that possible? I think it's because almost 100% of their focus and their attention and their gaze is on one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. See, for Paul to live is Christ. That is the single defining feature of his life. Everyone in the town square beating him with rods knew it. The prisoners knew it. The jailer knew it. Even the demon in the slave girl knew it. If you didn't know anything else about Paul, you knew that Paul was a follower of Jesus Christ. Christian, is that what defines your life? Like Paul is not just some guy who has some corny Christian wall art from Hobby Lobby up on his wall. He's not just some Christian who throws Philippians 4.13 in his Instagram bio. How do we know? Because when trials hit, those things get taken down really fast. Not so with Paul. Now, Paul had one mission, one hope, one identity, one aim in life, and that was Jesus Christ. And whether he be chained in a dungeon or preaching to thousands, he got to experience the reality that a life lived in, through, and for Jesus Christ is one of unshakable joy. Not because living in Christ means life gets easier, and the storms go away. That ideology has no footing in God's word. But living in Christ means that when, not if, but when that phone call comes, when that diagnosis comes, when your world starts to shake, and when at the end of it all you are before the King of Kings, you can praise God with joy. As Charles Spurgeon writes, he says, you can kiss the wave that throws you against the rock of ages. Why? Because you are in Jesus Christ. And nothing can take that away from you. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. That's how they're able to sing. Second Corinthians 4, 8, Paul writes, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. They're in a prison, yeah. They're in stocks, yeah. They're in suffering, yes, but they are in Christ. And that is a joy and a hope, church, that cannot be shaken. Last point on this verse. I know, I'm sorry. It's like my favorite verse ever. Um, It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Catch this last part. And the prisoners were listening to them. Don't forget that. Um, Louis Giglio said it really well. He said, in every midnight, Christian, you have a captive audience. Your response, your praise, your worship in the hour of difficulty is a witness in big ways and in small. Um, About a year ago, there was a show on Netflix that came out called Quarterback. Um, and basically, the show followed three NFL quarterbacks um, in games, behind the scenes, at their homes. Um, and one of the quarterbacks the show followed was Kirk Cousins. I and mean, Kirk Cousins, the quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. And basically, the show tracks Kirk throughout this whole season. And it culminates with this huge playoff game at home. Everyone's expecting them to win. And spoiler alert the Vikings lose. Kirk Cousins loses. And all the cameras, all the attention, just as our eyes so often do, they don't turn to the celebratory sideline. They don't turn to the confetti and the cheers and the cannons. They all turn on Kirk Cousins. You're sitting there watching, wondering, like, okay, how is this guy going to respond? When is he going to snap? And the cameras follow Kirk, and he cleans out his locker, he gets in the car, he walks in the front door, he goes upstairs, he's tucking his kids into bed, and you know what he starts doing? Same thing here. He prays with them, and then he starts singing. He sings, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And the camera guys, the directors of the show, like they don't know what to do with that. Your worship witnesses. In the same way, I remember going to church every week as a kid, standing next to my dad in the pews, and I'm going to be honest, I don't remember half the songs that we sung, I remember him singing. Some weeks a little louder, some weeks a little quieter. I was bored out of my mind half the time, but something in that witness that I still remember. Um, church, just like Paul and Silas' is singing has an audience in this prison, your worship witnesses to your families, to your kids, to non believers. Your singing is a witness, and our singing together every week is to. Our corporate worship every week is a witness. Like I remember when I was coming to faith like sixth and seventh grade and something was starting to click in my head. The spirit was starting to stir in my heart and I'd look on the screen and I'd see like amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I'd read that and I'd see everyone standing there like this mumbling along. And I was like, am I missing something? Like, are you guys reading this? Like guys, we just have to remember that our worship witnesses. And I, for one, am not going to even make the connection that raised hands and claps of praise equates to genuine worship. I certainly know what kind of church I signed up for, and I'm not saying fake it till you make it. I'm just saying remember that your worship is a witness. Um, I wasn't going to say this, but I can't stop thinking about it. Um, most of you guys know we do a live stream every week. We've got a little camera in the back. Um, sometimes I wonder... If we put that camera right here, pointed it out at you guys, and someone searched up Grace Hills Church Worship Service and they just started watching, what would they think? Would they think they were watching a bunch of people watching grass grow? Would they see people smiling and clapping and singing and participating in something? Hear me, I don't say that as a guilt trip. I actually say that as an encouragement. Want to see one of my favorite pictures of all time? That witnesses to know what that guy has gone through, and he's standing there singing like there's no one else in the room. Want to see a photo from our live stream a couple weeks ago? We need to raise the camera higher, not on my watch. Guys, that witnesses if to no one else than to me. And every week, I get the best seat in the house except during second, because I'm short and it's hard to see over the piano. Um, <laughs> it's not just hand-raising, guys. Like, the prisoners couldn't see Paul and Silas. They could hear him. Just remember, every week there are prisoners coming in here, people who have not yet been set free by the love and the grace of Jesus, and you better believe they're listening. Never forget your worship witnesses. Can I read verse 25 one more time? Then I promise we'll keep going. For we are all here. Let me make one thing clear. This passage is not about the power of man's praise. This passage is about the power of our God to save. How do I know that? Well, there's actually four miracles here. Right? The first miracle is the earthquake. It says the foundations of the prison were shaken. Prisons in this age were built into hillsides. In other words, if there was an earthquake, the whole place should have collapsed. Everybody in this prison should have died. This is no ordinary earthquake. The second miracle miracle—it's to open doors. Um, grant you, I did not grow up in California, but last I checked, earthquakes don't just open locked Roman prison cell doors. Like That doesn't happen. God opens all these doors. Miracle number three says everyone's bonds were unfastened. Again, grant you, I did not grow up here, but I don't think earthquakes do that. Earthquakes don't just break chains open. God does. The doors are open, the chains are broken, and at this point in the narrative, we're reintroduced to our friend, Mr. Jailer, who we last saw throwing Paul and Silas in the inner prison and tightening their feet in stocks. And he probably wakes up and says some words that we can't say in church. Roman law stated that if a guard lost even one prisoner, they would be publicly executed. So to save Rome the trouble and save his family the shame, this jailer gets out his sword and prepares to take his life. But there's one more miracle left here. You catch this? What does Paul cry out? He doesn't say, hey, everyone's gone, but Paul and Silas are still here. No, he says, we are all here. Like, no one moves a muscle. It's the worst prison break scene ever. It's a disaster. Like, nobody moves. I've read this passage like a hundred times. You know what I finally realized this week? The greatest miracle this night in Philippi, it's not the earthquake, it's that not one prisoner escapes. All the other stuff is just set in the stage the greatest miracle that night is that not one prisoner escaped. Why? Because it's through that miracle that God gets the attention of one guy. And we realize what God has been doing and who God has been after all along. Verse 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, The whole purpose of this earthquake in Philippi isn't to set the prisoners free. It's to set the jailer free. The whole point of this earthquake isn't to save Paul and Silas. They don't even go anywhere. It's to save one guy. And in case you didn't pick up on it, there's a fifth miracle tonight. Jailer gets saved how he asks the single most important question any of us will ever ask in our lives serves what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas give him the single most important answer any of us will ever cling to and believe in our lives. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You realize how antithetical that answer is to this guy's way of life? Like frankly, I'm surprised he doesn't ask the question again. <laughs> it's like, guys, no, like, no, what do I gotta do? Like, what program do I have to follow? Who do I got to sign up with? Who do I got to call? They say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That word believe also translated trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in, trust in Jesus as Lord, as King, as Savior. And the craziest thing is, the jailer does. How do we know that? We get a picture in this passage of change, Right maybe I'm just in a Christmas mood but this whole at whole end of this passage it reads like Scrooge at the end of a Christmas carol right he's not running through town in the snow on Christmas morning buying turkeys for Bob Cratchit but like this jailer is completely changed The very same night where he has a sword in his hand ready to take his own blood to save his life, he finds life in the blood of Jesus. The very same night that he is throwing Paul and Silas into the inner prison, he is now getting thrown by them into the waters of baptism. The same night he is fastening their feet in the stocks, he sets a table before them. And the last part of the verse says, He, that's the jailer, rejoiced. He joined their song along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. Remember that picture I showed you earlier of the prison in Lithuania? There's actually a third guy in this picture. (laughs) The very same night, this jailer was locking their feet in stocks. Now, Paul, Silas, the jailer, and the jailer's family have a whole family band rejoicing a family band that, no disrespect to the Johnsons, but would probably best be named the Midnight Hour. So what's the main point of this passage? Guys, two words, Jesus saves. The main point of this passage is not primarily about a song in prison or about an earthquake at all. It's about the power of our God going to the greatest lengths to save the greatest sinners. By the way, do you remember what Jewish guys like Paul would wake up and pray every single morning? Thank God I'm not a what? A woman, a slave, or a Gentile. In Acts 16, we see the church in Philippi get off the ground through who? A woman named Lydia, a slave girl, and a Gentile jailer. Church, I don't know all your stories, I don't know where you're at this morning, but if you're in the middle of a midnight hour of suffering and questioning, there stands an invitation, not just to a Philippian jailer this morning. There stands an invitation to all of us into a life in Christ, a life of rejoicing and hope and unshakable joy, no matter what comes your way. If you find yourself or you're currently in a season where you're like, David, that's great and all, but like you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm carrying. How can I sing through this? How do I even know God cares? How do I know God loves me? Number one, that's how. That while we were dead in our sins in an active rebellion against God, Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. Number one, you remember that cross. Number two, remember the man who hung on it. And he's not buried in some grave in the Middle East. He is alive. Three days later, he walked out of a grave. And he invites you into life, into life that's everlasting, that goes beyond this one. He invites you into unshakable joy and life, and life abundantly in him and with him forevermore. Church, that's the life that you and I are invited into this morning. Your chains are gone. You've been set free. So as Charles Wesley would say, rise, go forth, and follow thee. Let's pray. Um, God, we read this morning not just about a couple guys singing in a prison who surrendered their lives to you. Um, We read this reminded about a savior who surrendered his life for us, who came down, who lived, who died, who rose to set us free. And God, I thank you that you are the God who saves. You are the God who loves, who invites us into a life of rejoicing in you alone. And so, God, I pray this morning, you would help our unbelief. God, in seasons where we're tempted to plan or pout, Lord, would you teach us to praise, remind us that our worship witnesses, help us to live for you, through you, and in you. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. Um, It may seem like the most natural thing to start singing this morning, um, but there's an invitation, and there's a reminder for us this morning as we come to the communion table. Um, Frankly, I think that's the perfect way to close this morning. Um, You see, at the end of this story, in the jail in Philippi, I'm not going to read into this too much, but It says that they were rejoicing, not only probably by singing, but it says he set food before them. In other words, they're having a meal while they're explaining to the jailer and his family the gospel message. Um, Again, I'm not gonna read into this too much. The text doesn't say if there was bread and wine at the table, Um, I've got a hunch. What we get to participate in this morning is a meal that maybe Paul and Silas walked through with the jailer and his family. It's the meal of communion, the meal of somber celebration. Communion reminds us not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus did. The bread representing his body that was broken on that cross for you and for me. The cup representing the blood of Christ that was shed for you and for me. So who's communion for? Communion is for those of you who are in Christ, who have that joy, as a reminder of the joy that he invites us into, a reminder of what Jesus has done for you. Um, If you haven't put your faith in Jesus this morning, I just encourage you, please don't wait. Talk to me, talk to Simon, talk to our elders. We're gonna have a prayer team on the sides of the sanctuary as we continue worshiping this morning. Please talk to us, and we would love to just pray for you and pray with you. Um, Communion is reflective this week, so you can feel free to come on up, grab the elements, and then go back to your seat and just spend time in prayer, rejoicing, maybe singing. So wherever you're at this morning, maybe you feel like the jailer, just at the end of your rope. Maybe you feel like Paul or Silas. You've been walking and stumbling forward with Jesus for a long time. Or maybe you feel like one of the prisoners. Just kind of watching, observing, listening. Wherever you're at this morning, church, I don't know where you're at with God, but I know what God has done for you. That's the invitation that stands before you this morning. So don't wait. Let us come to the table.